was so pleased to hear from John that the cage fight is still on. Musk versus Zuckerberg. That's going to be compelling viewing. Anyway, in Your Money Today, Caroline Wright tackles one of the biggest financial, financial issues the world is facing at the moment, inflation. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. One of the biggest economic issues that we discuss all the time here on Money Talk is inflation, and in particular how central banks need to keep it under control, as well as why it got so high in the first place. I'm joined now by Stephen D. King, who's the author of We Need to Talk About Inflation, as well as a senior economic advisor at HSBC to take a deeper dive. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Let's kick off with what's going on with inflation and what were the warning signs that the world's central banks and finance ministers should have been taking notice of that maybe they didn't? If you go back to, say, 2021, so year two of the pandemic, there were the first clear indications, in my view, that inflation, both in the US and in Europe, was beginning to surprise on the upside. And this was a double surprise because, first of all, inflation was moving higher but it's moving higher against a background of incredibly depressed economic activity. And you don't normally put those two things together. You normally think, well, if activity is depressed, inflation is very low and vice versa. But on this occasion, you had very depressed activity and inflation moving higher. I guess that the central bankers themselves saw this and said, well, this shouldn't be happening. And therefore, we have to think of a series of excuses for why it's happening, which have nothing to do with us. And so those excuses, most obviously, were the kind of supply shocks associated with the pandemic itself. So, you know, shortages of semiconductors, rising prices of secondhand cars. And then just over a year later, so this is in 2022, particularly for Europe, once you have Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you obviously have this big energy price shock. So you've got this sort of pandemic shock and energy price shock. And central banks say, well, this is the reason why this has happened. It has nothing to do with us. We don't really have to worry. What's gone up will come back down very, very quickly. Some of us were actually warning at the time, uh, this is in early 2021, that perhaps the central banks were getting it wrong. And I think the telltale signs were partly an old-fashioned story, really, which was that in 2020 itself, the growth rate of money supply was absolutely through the roof. When you have these explosive numbers that we saw particularly in the US and to a lesser degree in Europe and the UK, it should give you pause for thought. And the central banks mostly didn't even look at it. They weren't mentioning money supply, thinking this isn't actually important. The second thing which central banks, I think, made a mistake on was the idea that somehow they thought that the public believed that the central banks themselves were perfect in every single way, couldn't make any mistakes, and therefore that the public would continue to believe whatever happened to current inflation that inflation in the future would be locked at whatever the target is that the central banks had. And as we discovered, slowly but surely, the longer that inflation sprays away from target, the bigger are the doubts the public has about the central bank's commitment to hitting that target. Now, some central banks, to be fair, were quicker than others to recognize these problems. So Jay Powell of the Fed banned the use of the word transitory at the end of 2021 effectively admitting that maybe inflation was a bigger problem and a more embedded problem than had been thought previously. These central bankers, should they have been looking back to their history books themselves and going, you know what, this has actually happened before and there is a way that we could have dealt with this. You delve quite a lot into history in your book. So where, yes, where 2, should they have been... years of it. Um... <laughs> so yeah, where, where should they have been looking and should they have been able to cope with this better? 
there are two areas where they, they could have been looking. The first is actually thinking about money itself, stressing that I'm not a monetarist, but the fact that you have very, very strong monetary growth is something which has been a common feature of many inflations in the past. You know, whether you go back to inflation during the Roman Empire or whether you go through to the price revolution of the 16th century when basically the Spanish discovered a lot of silver in Latin America and shipped it across to Europe, which is basically a version of creating money back in those days. Or whether you think about the civil war in the US in the 1860s, getting huge amounts of monetary creation, all these are, are good examples of where if you print too much money, you're going to probably end up with quite a lot of inflation. And then the other example, which is slightly different in one sense, is the French Revolution, where not only do you have monetary experiments, but you also importantly saw a massive loss of trust on behalf of the people in the governments of the day, a sense that perhaps they were doing too many monetary experiments. These experiments were in danger of going wrong. And as a consequence, people just didn't want to hold money. If you want a sort of a modern era version of that kind of French revolutionary problem, it probably is the experiments with quantitative easing over the last few years. People aren't quite sure how this sort of magic monetary creation is supposed to work. But what it has done, I think, has created uncertainty about whether central banks truly have been on top of things. And the other thing I would say is that we always, always live in the world of tremendous uncertainty. The future is, of course, unknowable to a certain degree. And one of the biggest mistakes I think the central banks made was to assume that the future was always going to be deflationary. And they couldn't imagine the world in which prices were rising rather than falling. As so when prices did start to rise, it was almost as if they had a lack of intellectual imagination to even think this could be possibly happening. So all the excuses then came out. Now we have got ourselves into this situation and these excuses have come out. How can we turn it around? How can we kind of try to reel in some of that uncertainty and get things back on track? There are two broad historical narratives here. The first is to blame either companies or unions for the increases in prices and wages. And if you go down that path, you tend to go down the path of price controls or wage controls. And then the other alternative is a sort of more traditional macroeconomic alternative, which is basically you have to tighten monetary policy, and that means raising interest rates quite a long way. Now, my view, and this isn't shared by everybody, but my view is that the history of price and wage controls is not an encouraging history. You, know, you can impose these price and wage controls here and there, but it's like whack-a-mole. You, know, you hit one area, try to stop prices and wages going up, and all that happens is they go up somewhere else instead. So I think the lesson, actually, from many hundreds of years of history is that you've got to get a grip with monetary policy itself. And that means, of course, raising short-term interest rates. Now, to be fair, we've seen very big increases in short-term interest rates over the last year or so, effectively central banks scrabbling to cash up with the mistakes they've already made. However, if you look at where core inflation is, this is stripping out the kind of volatile food and energy components and just focusing on the sort of underlying inflation trends. You look at those underlying inflation trends and compare them with the current level of short-term interest rates. History would suggest that even though rates have risen quite a long way, they probably haven't risen far enough. Now, to be fair, you can rank central banks here. You know, the Federal Reserve has done more in terms of rate increases than either the European Central Bank or the Bank of England. So in that sense, it's top of the league in terms of tightening monetary policy and the others are some way behind. But overall, I would say that the jury is still out. And I think that means from the point of view of the current consensus, there are two risks out there. The first risk is that actually we do get to 2% inflation in two or three years' time, but we only get there because monetary policy is much, much tighter than anyone currently thinks it's going to be, which, of course, creates a much bigger risk of a hard landing for the economy. 
And the other risk is that actually there's no desire for a hard landing. No one wants it. We're all fed up with the problems of COVID and so on in damaging economic prospects. Therefore, we all want to build back better, so to speak. And in those circumstances, we just allow inflation to sort of creep back into the system. It becomes a much more permanent feature than any central bank is currently suggesting. Because under those circumstances, we don't get back to 2% inflation still up at 3 4 5%. And actually, we've entered, in effect, a new inflationary era. What might this era look like? In your mind at the moment, how's that era going to develop? And, and how should we be preparing for it? And how should central bankers be preparing for it? Well, for central bankers themselves, this is a difficult one, because, of course, if we end up with persistently higher inflation, then their credibility will be damaged. And I think they will be open to far greater political scrutiny than they've suffered from over the last few decades. I mean, the last few decades have been great for central banks because inflation has been low, it's been stable, the public have been generally supportive of them. That might have shifted over the last year or two. So it might be that the era of purely independent central banks might be drawing to a close. So that's quite a big thing for them. As for the rest of us, well, there are a few things worth noting. The first is that periods of inflation tend to be favorable for what we might describe as real assets rather than nominal assets. So that means you're investing in stock market or property rather than, say, government bonds or keeping your money in cash, which is definitely a loser when you've got a lot of inflation around. But it's also worth stressing, I think it's important to stress this, that even if real assets outperform nominal assets, so to speak, the real assets still won't give you great returns. And the volatility of them from year to year is likely to be extremely high. And the reason for that is that the market at any particular point in time doesn't know whether the inflation is being solved or whether it's still around. So you have these bets constantly shifting from one to the other view from year to year. And that introduces levels of volatility that we haven't really seen, I guess, since the 1970s and early 1980s. Plenty of food for thought there. I think I could talk to you all day. Stephen D. King, the author of We Need to Talk About Inflation. Thank you so much for joining me on Money Talk today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks.